it's almost hard to greet you after that fantastic reading of scripture because the words are so sobering, but it is good to see you all. I was just reflecting over Thanksgiving that as terrible as the pandemic has been, one of the great pleasures for me at least has been the opportunity to preach by Zoom to different places, particularly to see you all. Um, because, you know, normally you wouldn't have a speaker by Zoom, but since we're all on Zoom, it gives us an opportunity. So it's so good to see you all. And um, I'm filled with thanks for the opportunity to be with you again. Um, as we continue in Habakkuk together, I was thinking about a student um, that I was discipling when I was still on staff at the University of Chicago. Um, the student was brilliant and talented, passionate for Jesus, and also terribly broken. Um, she had been sexually assaulted um, several times, including by a youth pastor and by people who she should have trusted and been able to trust. Um, she was dealing with deep family dysfunction and midway through her time at the university, it all came crashing down. She needed to be hospitalized for her own safety. She battled with depression. It was during those months that I got to know her well, and we would meet together regularly in Hutchinson Commons, which was one of the large dining halls um, at uh, the University of Chicago. Um, and it's a room that's designed to look like, I believe, King's College Chapel at Cambridge, I believe. And so it's just gloriously beautiful. And we would sit there, and I remember at one point she turned to me and said, um, what I'm struggling most with right now, Greg, is um, why did God allow this all to happen to me? And she said, I feel like I'm in a deep, dark abyss, and I don't know how to get out. And what makes it even harder is I have no doubt God loves me. I have no doubt that God exists. But it just makes it that much more terrible. If God exists and God loves me and I know he does, why did these things happen? I think of that student in part because as you read Habakkuk, you're confronted with somebody who's asking that same kind of question, aren't we? Habakkuk, um, as you um, heard last week, is wrestling with deep experiences of injustice, of terror and treachery all around. And so he asks God questions, God responds. And I want to spend a little time right at the beginning of chapter two. Let me read uh, verse one again. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. What I love and appreciate deeply about Habakkuk is after raising his questions and making his accusations, right? Because that's the end of chapter one, where he's like, How, why do you allow these things to happen? Why, these, why does injustice continue? Why does destruction continue to roll over and over and over? After raising these questions, after saying, I know you exist, and I know you are a just God, Habakkuk stands and he says, I will watch and I will listen for what you have to say. And I wonder in this Advent season, um, what questions do you bring to God? In this period of 
the four weeks before Christmas, what issues of justice and God's care and compassion are you wrestling with? Because remember, Advent is designed to be that time where we reflect on Christ's first coming and his second. And because it's framed in this way, right, we're waiting for Jesus' Advent, both as a child at Bethlehem, but also for him to return. It reminds us we live in between those two times. We live in between the time when Jesus has come to earth, has announced the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. And throughout the gospels, what you see Jesus doing is demonstrating what it will look like when the kingdom of God arrives. People are free from the physical maladies that disable them and prevent them from engaging in the world. People are reintegrated into society as lepers are healed and made clean and then welcomed back into community. A woman with a hemorrhage is brought back in and freed so that she can worship and be with family and friends. The kingdom of God arrives and we're reminded that the kingdom is far greater than any one small people group, but instead extends to the Samaritan woman, alienated and rejected by her townsmen, yet engaged in a loving conversation with God as they sit at a well. A Syrophoenician woman who cries out, save my daughter. And Jesus says, look, I'm here to feed the children of Israel. And she goes, look, even a dog gets scraps on the table. Give me the scraps of what you have. And the promise that one day I'll join this feast. The kingdom of God arrives and Jesus says, to a man, your sins are forgiven. So get up and walk, right? The, when the kingdom of God arrives, um, chains are broken, lives are restored, communities are knit back together. And we know that that's what happened when Jesus came. And yet it's not complete. And we're waiting for Jesus to come again. And I think Habakkuk is a perfect text during Advent because we live between Christ's first coming and his second. So what questions plague you, trouble you, gnaw at you in this in-between time when we know God exists, we know he's loving, we know he's at work, and yet we still have not fully experienced the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of his Lord and his Christ, of righteousness being fulfilled of us as a church glowing with Christ-likeness. It's one of the purposes of Advent, to awaken our awareness of how we live between these two comings of Jesus. And I think one of the small graces of COVID, and, and I acknowledge it's small, is it helps us not to avoid the questions because those questions are inescapably in front of us. Right, Because normally, if this were not a pandemic time, if this were just a normal Christmas and we were at church together worshiping, the sanctuary would be filled with um, the Advent wreath. It would be decorated beautifully for Christmas, which works particularly well in the log cabin. Right, Our homes would be glowing with lights. We'd be anticipating um, seeing friends and families. Cookies would be exchanged. Feasts would be planned. Presents would be given, times with family would be anticipated, at least for most of us with joy most of the time. Um, but, and so much of Christmas and this season would actually 
I think, prevent us from paying attention to what happens in these in-between times. Oh, occasionally we might be reminded because you'd go to a store and you'd hear a ringing bell and you'd see somebody from the Salvation Army and it might prick our conscience to go, okay, let me just give a little here at that red kettle and alleviate my sense that there are things wrong with the world and I'm contributing to it. Many of us are working on our financial year-end giving. And so, oh, let me write a couple more checks during the season and that will be my way of engaging. But weirdly, I suspect those very actions, which are all good and which we should certainly continue and support to the extent that we're able in the season, I sometimes worry alleviate us from the actual questions that press us, that should be pressing us. Why are there people still hungry? Why are there people still without sufficient housing and care? In my own school district here in the Western suburbs of Chicago, it's a reasonably comfortable um, neighborhood, probably much like the area around where you all live. Um, the school district just recently posted on Facebook, there are 60 students who are homeless right now in the district. And so there was a fundraiser uh, to buy gift cards and other things so that the families could buy food and have some Christmas presents. Why is that the reality? There was just an article in uh, my local newspaper um, on the number of um, undocumented students who are at school during the day, but then work eight to 12 hour shifts at local factories. Um, often um, lying about their age that they could take jobs which are deemed unsafe for teenagers, um, usually in heavy construction or in recycling metal pieces. And because they work from eight to three in the morning or so, or four in the morning, um, they're often sleeping during classes. And uh, our local paper was asking, how do you care for students like that? And what can teachers do? In fact, so much of our lives is actually precisely designed to prevent us from asking these kinds of questions. Um, many people choose to live in suburbs in part to avoid some of these questions. Many of us work very hard at our jobs to avoid these kinds of questions so that we have enough, so we have a nest egg. And yet, when you think about a nest egg, you begin to think about what happens in the rest of this passage because nests and the safety of the nest is one of the things that God begins to condemn. <laughs> I love Advent because it forces us to confront these questions. And the challenge for us as a church is to embrace this kind of a discipline, the discipline represented by Habakkuk's life, so that we don't avoid the questions, but we press in. I suspect I've told this story before, but many years ago, um, at the church I was attending, it was my turn to give the congregational prayer. And I prayed a prayer um, actually not dissimilar to the prayer um, that Elfie prayed for us this morning. Thank you for that beautiful prayer. Um, I was praying about, you know, during the course of this hour and a half of worship that we will spend together, nine people have successfully committed suicide. There will be 500 children who will die of hunger, you know, X number. So I was just going through litany, trying to remind myself while we were gathered at worship, um, how famine and pestilence and HIV and depression would take their toll even while we worshiped. And after church, um, a friend said to me while we were eating lunch together, you bum me out every time you pray. And I thought, well, that's awkward. I mean, that's not usually the ho hope you have when you pray at church. 
I really didn't know how to answer, so I took a bite of my sandwich because it bought me some time. And then I said, tell me more. Uh, because I've learned as a professional minister, if you don't know what to say, sometimes the best thing to do is not to answer, just ask another question. And so she said, I come to church exhausted by the work week. I'm burdened by all the things I have to do, all the things that I'm left undone, all the problems in the world. I just want to meet Jesus for a while. I want to be lifted up and encouraged. And we finish musical worship and my soul is singing. And then there you come up with your prayer. Lord, people are dying while we're singing. Lord, people are depressed and the world is broken and hurting. And it just, she said, it bums me out. Why do you do that to me? It's Sunday. Well, I didn't know what to say. So I took another bite of my sandwich one of the reasons I like to disciple people when I'm on campus while we're eating a meal. It buys me time to think about an answer and to listen to the Holy Spirit. And after I finished chewing, I said, um, you know, I appreciate that. And I'm sorry I bum you out. But one of the reasons I pray those prayers when I'm given a chance to do the congregational prayer is I talk to students all the time who love quoting Marx. Religion's just the opiate of the masses. Use religion to appease people so they don't worry about how bad the world is. You don't have to worry about how bad the world is today. You'll have heaven. So keep working, Marx would say. Um, I said, if I'm going to sing about God's love enduring forever, God's faithfulness reaching to the clouds, if I'm going to sing about God's mercy and God's care for us, and if I ignore the fact that people are dying from preventable disease while I sing that song, then really Marx was right. And my worship doesn't have, um, my worship is just a way to distract me from the pain of the world. If I can't sing about God's mercy and love extended through Jesus Christ and be very attentive to the fact that somebody is perishing right now without having heard about Jesus, because maybe I kept my mouth shut in my workplace or in my neighborhood, in my family, um, or in my community, maybe I don't really believe that God's grace is so wonderful and that God's mission is so urgent. I said, I do this because I want to be able to remember these people and what's happening while I sing about these truths about the goodness and the justice and the holiness and the love of God, so that when I sing it, it has integrity in my heart. So that even in the midst of seeing these realities, I will proclaim that God is good, that God is beautiful and holy and just and merciful and kind. And then I will be forced to ask the question, if this is true about God and it's true about the world, then what am I to do? That's why I'm bumming you out inadvertently. Um, my hope isn't to bum you out, I told my friend. My hope is to keep my heart right so that I don't use Jesus to ignore the world that Jesus loves. And I love that about Habakkuk that he doesn't fear to ask the question and to wrestle before that. And so he says, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to listen and I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait for your answer. And then in verse two, it says, the Lord replied, right? Then the Lord replied, but I want to take one last moment before we get there and ask to point up, there's a space between verse one and two. And often we don't look at the spaces between verses. We just jump to the next verse. But I want to point out that there's a break. We don't know how long the break is. In most of our English translations, they throw in a little paragraph marker. And that may or may not be helpful. But there's space between those lines. Habakkuk says, um, I will look to see what he will say to me. Um, 
How much time elapses between verses one and two? Is it a few minutes? Habakkuk is railing against God and God in his chatty way that he has with some of my friends just goes, oh, you want to ask that question? I'm happy to answer you. Was it a few hours? Could Habakkuk have said, I'm going to wait for your answer and then waited for a few days or months or years? I think it's worth occasionally noting the spaces between the verbs, I mean, between the verses. For example, in Acts, which I know as a congregation you walk through, um, there are about three years between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Right? Everything's super busy at the beginning of Acts. Like things are rolling, 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 and then three years nothing really happens. And then you get to chapter 9. In fact, if you look at the chronology of the book of Acts, Dick can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about 32 years of life described in the book of Acts, from the very first chapter to the very end. We read it as if it was like in a couple of months, there, everything is moving. Paul might hang out for a little while in Ephesus, but then it just keeps, right? There's three years hanging out in Ephesus where nothing gets written other than Paul kept teaching. There are gaps of years between some of the verses. Um, I just thought, since we're living in this in-between time in Advent, between Christ's first coming and second coming, it's worth noting there's an undeterminate, indeterminate, undefined period of time between verse 1 and 2. And I point that out because I suspect some of us are living between verses 1 and 2. We're asking our questions, we're wrestling with deep sense of pain and confusion about what God is doing or why he's not doing it. And so we're waiting for an answer. And an answer has not yet come. And Advent reminds us that that waiting, living between times is very normal. That's why annually we come to it. And there's space between verses 1 and 2. And I hope for all of us who might be living in the space between the questions we're asking God and receiving an answer, we approach it like Nehemiah does. How do you live faithfully in that space between verses 1 and 2? I want to suggest verse 4 points the way out for us. Verse 4 says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The contrast is between someone who is puffed up in pride, who is unjust in their posture, and the righteous one, the one that God says, you are living as you should, will live by his faithfulness. And the assumption there is probably it's the faithfulness of the person waiting What does faithfulness look like? I want to suggest it might look like three things. Faithfulness, when you live between the question that you're asking and God's answer, looks like remembering that God has spoken already and that he's not consistently silent. He's not like one of the idols described at the end of the chapter, but in fact, he is a God who has communicated, who has made himself known. He hasn't answered every specific question we have, but he's answered a whole lot of them. The space between verse 1 and 2 in chapter 2 occurs after God has already spoken in chapter 1 
to, uh, to Habakkuk's first complaint. Sorry, I got tied up on which Old Testament character we were talking about for a second. Right? Um, Habakkuk knows God speaks. For all of us, particularly for those of us who gather regularly at this church, we know God speaks. We've been studying the scriptures together for years, decades in some of our cases. We've heard God speak. We know he's answered many of our questions, and so it gives us faith to trust him with the questions that we're wrestling now. God is there, and he is not silent. Many of us know that God speaks because he's answered prior questions that we've brought to him. Even in the midst of our, the current silence we may be wrestling with, we can look back on our lives. This is why Thanksgiving is so cri critical for us. It's why community is so necessary, because we can come alongside one another and say, in the silence that you're experiencing now, though this does not answer the question that you may be asking, can I remind you of the ways that he's met us in the past? And can I hold that with you? One of the ways that we can be faithful is remembering that God has spoken. I think the second way might be the posture in which Nehemiah describes himself, right? He's describing himself as a watchman, climbing up to a tower, standing at the ramparts, looking out into the darkness, right? Which is what watchmen did, looking for any movement, listening uh, for any threat. Um, he, Habakkuk is so attentive to how God may speak. Scanning the horizon and listening in the dark. I think part of the way we live faithfully in between is taking the time to be attentive to how God might try to answer that question. Not just for a few minutes during a day when we wrestle with it, but potentially even for years as we wrestle with these questions. Too often, I suspect, for some um, people that I've watched who have ended up walking away from the faith as they wrestle with questions that they don't have answers to, um, they stop asking, they stop listening, and they stop watching. And there's a profound act of faith, I think, that comes from saying, I don't know the answer but I will continue to listen, even in the silence. Um, I think often of um, one of InterVarsity's former presidents, <clears throat> excuse me, John Alexander, who I'm going to quote this wrong because my resource is at my office and I've not been there in quite a while to pick it up. But he said, what do I do when I reach um, portions of scripture that seem to contradict one another or that are difficult to understand? He said, um, Particularly in those moments, I, of course, study the rest of scripture to see if it brings light to the situation. But after study, if I cannot um, make uh, sense of it, rather than reject it as scripture, I choose to submit to it and wait and invite God to speak into it. I'm not here to judge whether scripture is accurate or not, Dr. A used to say. Um, I'm here to submit to it. I want to bring my best thinking to it. But when in doubt, I hold it up to faith and trust that one day God will make it clear, if not in this life, then in the next. The third thing beyond remembering that God has spoken and watching for it is that 
even in choosing to ask the question, listening, there's a posture of faith that I think is quite critical. It's being honest with what the honest question is and being willing to respond to the question when you get the answer. I think of a student that one of my colleagues, um, uh, I see uh, Jenna's on the call. So this is a, a Jeanette Yep story, Jenna, a, a mutual friend of ours. Um, she was meeting as an university staff worker with a student who was um, not yet a Christian, uh, but interested according to his friends. And so she would go to the dorm on a regular basis when she was on campus at the University of Chicago. And she basically said to him, look, what questions do you have about Jesus? What's um, holding you back from the faith? And every week he'd come up with a new question. I'm not sure the Bible is really trustworthy. I don't know if Jesus really exists. I mean, he had a whole list. And, I, and after several months of this, um, I remember uh, Jeanette told me, she looked at him and said, does, after his next question, does this question really matter? Like, if I answered this question in a reasonable way to your satisfaction, would you become a follower of Jesus? And he said, no, probably not. And she said, I think the only reasonable thing a Christian minister trying to reach a non-Christian could say, uh, would say, she said, stop wasting my time. Either ask me a question that matters or let's stop doing this. But what is really keeping you from Jesus? I'm happy to do this for the next year. He's to ask me a question that matters. Have some integrity as you ask this question. Um, I often wonder as I work with um, Gen Z, sometimes I want to ask them the question, you know, you keep saying this is a reason that you want, want to walk away from the faith or not follow Jesus. But can I ask you, if we could answer this question, would you turn and submit to Jesus? Or is this just a convenient way to avoid following Jesus? There's a posture of faith, I think. Um, living faithfully means asking the honest question, one that really matters, and then taking it to Jesus, not using questions to distract us. Um, the beauty, of course, in Habakkuk is that God does answer. Sometime in the elapsed time between verse 1 and 2, as Nehemiah, as, sorry, I keep calling him Nehemiah because I preached to Nehemiah recently. As Habakkuk waits, as he listens, as he brings the honest questions that he's wrestling with, as he is trusting God that God will indeed speak as he has spoken again, God does speak. And Nancy read the list of woes, right, of this lament over what evil has been done and how God will answer them. And I'm not going to go in depth into each one, but let me just group them together. Um, if you think about them as woes, and it's, I think, often because of the way we hear the Bible, woe sounds like, you know, some prophet up from like, I'm condemning you, but woe is a sign of lament. You have woes when you're grieving. When you hear... Jesus say, woe to you, it's not with a shaking finger of accusation, it's with a breaking heart. I'm grieving over what you do not see. I'm grieving with you at the judgment that you will experience. I'm weeping with you in the way that I think um, any of us who've ever loved somebody has wept when you watch them choose a path that you know will lead to their destruction, right? Every parent has wept that has said woe in their heart as you've watched a child make a bad decision, whether small or life-changing. Every person who's been married 
knows the sense of woe when you watch your beloved make a choice that's leading and hurting them or um, eroding your marriage. Every friend has watched this happen as somebody that you've grown up with and loved and have shared memories with has chosen a path that you just, just breaks your heart. None of us gloat in those moments. Schadenfreude, right, is for people we don't know well. The people we love, we say, we say woe because we're weeping for them. And you hear God's weeping for people, for Babylon, the enemy of his people, the empire that's destroyed Israel and is destroying Israel. But I want us to be attentive to what he's weeping over. He's weeping over the, the unjust gain of the Babylonian empire. And let's put a little point on that. Even though this is written in individual language, you have, it's easy for us here in the West to go, oh, they must be talking about an individual, but he's talking about a community, a nation, right? This is a collective sin that they're wrestling with. And in the first two woes, which go from six to eight and nine to 11, he talks about the unjust gain that this empire, this community, this country has experienced, the theft and the extortion, the predatory lending that they're doing against other people, the murder and the war, which has enriched them. Woes three and four talk about physical violence in verses 12 through 14 and sexual violation and pornography, essentially in verses 15 to 17, right? You've gotten people drunk and you've enjoyed their nakedness afterwards. You enjoy the shame and the embarrassment that they feel. The final woe talks about idolatry at the end, verses 18 and 19, seeking security through the things we make and then trusting them to guide us. I can see why Nancy would say that Barbara said, if you read this in the contemporary English edition, it would sound tremendously contemporary, doesn't it? And God's response is that he promises he will judge these sins appropriately in a timely way. That's what he's saying, particularly at the end of verse three, though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. I will bring out justice. It's inevitable in its arrival. It may take a while, but do not worry. I will accomplish these things. Those that are plundered will be plundered. Those that engage in injustice will find that their buildings themselves will cry out against them. The physical violence and injustice will be snuffed out by the knowledge of the glory of God as it fills the earth like the water fills the sea. There will be nothing which can repudiate or challenge God's supremacy, God's justice and holiness. Because one day, the Lord says, the world will be saturated with the knowledge of my glory. And everything dark and evil will have been banished. Everything challenging it will have been eliminated. And every heart will be tuned to sing his praise. Those that humiliated others will be humiliated in turn and judged. And those that turn to the things that they make for guidance will be guided by things that have no life and no wisdom and no future of their own. Again, what's so striking, I think, is how contemporary, contemporary these issues seem to be. Because it's not just the Babylonian empire that did these things, is it? Right? Every empire, every country engages in these things. We just finished Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, and if any of you have school-age children, you know the way we're teaching Thanksgiving now is not as Thanksgiving was taught 30 or 40 or 50 years ago as just a lovely potluck 
where people happen to bring things together. It was an experience of unity, but my children immediately, as we talked about Thanksgiving said, but what about um, the profound deaths of Native Americans before the first Thanksgiving when so many died from smallpox? How Squanto, who was there, was actually enslaved and taken away for many years and returned to find his entire people um, dead and gone. And therefore, but still continued to reach out to that small colony. Um, how are things like um, unjust gain, theft, extortion, still a part of the ways that communities build themselves today? It's fascinating to me how the current racial dynamic in our country is causing us to ask questions about how do our buildings cry out about injustice, right? Isn't that partially what's happening as communities, particularly in the South, are reflecting back on what does it mean that we have a monument to a Confederate general at the center of our city? What does it mean that some of our schools and buildings in our college campuses are named after people who fought for and argued for the continued existence of slavery? It's a question being asked at Yale. It's a question that's being asked in Richmond, Virginia. It's a question being asked around the country. It's a little bit of what God said in Habakkuk 2. The stones of your buildings themselves will cry out and remind you of the injustices that occurred in the past. How will you grapple with it? As he talks about, you live in a culture that inebriates one another so that you can gaze on their naked bodies. I was reflecting on the article that Nicholas Kristof wrote in the New York Times just yesterday on um, children of Pornhub which dealt with um, how, many, how students are being affected when their experiences of rape and date rape are now being broadcast on a readily accessible website that's dedicated to amateur porn. It's exactly what Habakkuk was talking about, isn't it? As he talks about you will be filled with shame instead of your glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. Um, right next to the article on the children of Pornhub, at least on my digital version of the New York Times, because I was profoundly affected by my time in New York, so that's the, still the newspaper I'm reading, was a long article about what's happened with Hillsong Church in New York City and the fall of their pastor, Carl Lentz. And now what's coming out, it was not one affair, but potentially multiple, not just one breach of trust, but multiple years of breaches of trust within the congregational system that they're coming to grips with and having to address. And I say that not to embarrass the church or to castigate it, but to point out what scripture promises is actually happening. The things that were hidden are now being revealed the things that they thought were being done in secret that humiliated and degraded others is now coming to light. And the church and the Lenz family are grappling with what it means that things have become public. In a season where we as a country are wrestling more and more with what artificial intelligence can do to us through social media and telling us what to look at, where to find our security, what's true news and what's false news, as algorithms increasingly determine what we see and what we hear, don't the verses at the end of this chapter resonate in a new way? 
of craftsmen who build things and then consult the things that they build for what their future will be like, who craft things out of metal, not so much wood anymore, and then wonder if the piece of metal will give them guidance for the future. And how God says, you're looking at the wrong things and at the wrong place for guidance for a future and your hope. God says, Habakkuk, I see all this. I see the things that you're wrestling with. And point by point, injustice by injustice, foolishness by foolishness, idolatry by idolatry, apostasy by apostasy, I will answer these things. Do not worry. I am the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. You have nothing to fear. I will bring about justice. And I think that's why chapter two ends with a verse that most of us are familiar with. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Because once you see God in his glory, once you see him in his purposes, really the questions begin to end, don't they? It's not that the questions are no longer important. We should still ask them. But suddenly Nehemiah is grounded in the reality, even if I don't get a specific answer to the question I have. I know who reigns. I know who rules. I know what it means for me to choose to be faithful, even if others are profiting from their own faithlessness and apostasy. I'm thinking about this a lot in part because just um, earlier this week, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who I've known since I was 18. He was a graduate student when I was an undergraduate. And we've been friends a long time, but he said, you know, Greg, you're at the age where you should really be um, attempting to do bigger things. You should, you know, and he, being a good mentor and a good older friend, he's kind of an older brother type. He was encouraging me to try more. And in part, because I was reflecting on some of the things before the sermon, I said, you know, um, at this stage, I'm so much less concerned about achieving great things. Um, I would just be so grateful if I could finish my life and felt like I'd been modestly faithful. Um, because I think modest faithfulness at my part will be harder <laughs> than achieving great things. Um, how do we live faithfully in this period between Christ's first coming and his second? Habakkuk points us partially to the way to unhesitatingly come to God with the questions that we wrestle with about justice and injustice, about pain and sorrow and suffering, to wait faithfully with deep trust that he will answer. And then I think like Nehemiah, when he chooses to answer, to be silent and to worship. And the question of how to live faithfully is really in part why we take communion together as a family, right? At communion, we remember what Christ accomplished in his first coming, in his death on our behalf, to absolve us of our sins and to commission us um, as his agents as of the new covenant, and to do so in remembrance until he comes again. Communion is a mini advent that we engage in month by month to remind us of how to be faithful in these in-between times. And so with that, um, Let me go back to my friend, that student that I used to meet with at Hutchinson Commons at the University of Chicago. In the end, I never had a good answer to her question, why did God allow this if he loved me? All I could point to her was, 
hang on to the belief that God loved you and raise the question with him. And she said, it's the most painful thing I can imagine. I said, I know, but I think it's the most important thing that you can do. You know that God lives and you know that he loves you. Hang on and cling to that and allow that to begin to structure the ways that we begin to engage the question. I've stayed in touch with her. It's been, mercy, almost 30 years now since we had those conversations. She's still following Jesus. She's committed her life to serving people who've been broken and bruised by the realities of oppression um, in the world in really tremendous ways. She still knows God loves her. She's not still, she's still not yet gotten a full answer to why God allowed that to happen, but she's allowing the reality of who God is to lead her to be faithful, even as she still waits for the answer. And may that be true for us as well. Let me pray for us, and then I will hand it over to Dick for communion. Lord Jesus, we love you. And in the face of death and confusion, famine and pestilence, of pain and of darkness, and all around us, and for some of us deep inside us, we like Habakkuk. Wait for your answer and wait for your presence. Help us, I pray, to wait in trust that what you accomplish in your first coming, you will finish in your second. And then at that point, you will wipe away every tear from our eye and right all the injustices that we see. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.